The following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Wonderful. Well, please do grab a Bible uh, nearby. Hopefully there's one near you. We've got two readings this morning. In a few moments, Sandy is going to come and preach. And uh, before then, we're going to have two readings. One from Psalm 37, so page 563, Psalm 37. And uh, you might also like to look up Matthew chapter 13, uh, page 979. So uh, put a finger in Matthew 13, page 979, and turn to Psalm 37, page 563. And uh, Naomi and Jeremy are going to come and read. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. And then verses 39 onwards. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Matthew 13, starting at verse 24. The parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Then over the page, starting at verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, 
and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Thank you very much, Jeremy and Naomi. This uh, sermon has a title which is Deliver Us From Evil. John Stott calls Deliver Us From Evil one of the three profound expressions of dependence at, in the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Give us our bread, forgive us our sins, and deliver us from evil. Being delivered from evil is as basic a human need as food and forgiveness. On Remembrance Sunday, we thought it was important to wrestle with the subject of evil. We've all watched helpless and horrified as events have unfolded in Israel and Gaza. How can people be so cruel? How can this happen in the 21st century? How much worse might things get as the conflict escalates? And at the same time, we have a major war in Europe, and once again, the human capacity for remorseless cruelty and violence is brought horribly to our attention. Our optimism about humanity is confronted by the depth and power of the forces of evil in the human heart and the intractability of evil in the world around us. And that's why we need the Bible's realism about ourselves and about evil. And also the hope that there is one who can deliver us from evil. First point, evil and the devil are real. Andrew Del Banco is a professor at Columbia University in New York, and he wrote a book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost Their Sense of Evil. And he says a gulf has opened up in modern culture between the reality and visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for us to cope with it. We have enormous confidence in ourselves, in our ability to sort everything out by educating the ignorant, changing the social system, and providing the right medication or counseling. But then reality comes along and snaps us in the face again and says, you haven't begun to understand how deeply broken and messed up things are. Someone said, peace is a modern invention, but war is as old as humanity. And Pascal, one of the great Christian thinkers, said this about original sin. Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, 
we are incomprehensible to ourselves. I have to face the unpalatable truth that there is something wrong with me, that whatever I am, I am not myself. And we find that hard to hear, don't we, as sophisticated 21st century people. We're told that to find the truth, we must look inside ourselves. We must make our own choices about right and wrong. There are no moral absolutes. And in a therapeutic culture, well-being becomes the new morality. My real problem is lack of self-esteem. I don't think highly enough of myself. Someone has said the Church of England has replaced the doctrine of sin with the doctrine of flourishing. No one has the right to make you feel guilty. And in that environment, the Bible's message that we are guilty can come across as oppressive, perhaps dangerous. And yet sin doesn't go away. Ernest Becker, an atheist, said, the problem of modern people is that they are sinners with no word for it. And that's where the realism of Christianity is refreshing. G.K. Chesterton called sin the only directly observable Christian doctrine. We can't see the Trinity, we can't see God's sovereignty, we can't see the final judgment, but sin is visible all around us. Best definition of marriage I know, two sinners under one roof. When you get married, there's no place to hide. You discover the other person is a sinner, and they discover that you're a sinner too. And that's why so many marriages end in divorce. And then you have children, lovely little curly-haired, giggly bundles of fun. And what do you discover? They learn to say no long before they learn to say yes. And if you say, do not stand in that puddle, what happens? Splash. In his book, Unapologetic, Francis Spufford said, when people claim that the Christian doctrine of sin is much too pessimistic about humanity, he always gives them the same answer. Read more history, mate. In that book, The Death of Satan, Andrew Del Banco quotes from Thomas Harris's novel, The Silence of the Lambs, where the monstrous killer Hannibal Lecter is talking to Officer Starling. And she says to him, what happened to you that you could do this? Who did something to you that you could be so bad? And he replied, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can't you stand to say that I am evil? He knows he's got her. He's asking her a question. Her secular worldview gives her no ability to answer. And once we get rid of Satan and sin and cosmic evil, then every bad action is just a product of circumstances or social or psychological conditions. And that trivializes the reality of evil and the suffering of its victims. And events in Gaza make us again face the truth. The comedian, American comedian Will Rogers said, you can't say civilization is not advancing. In every war, they kill you in a new way. So evil is real and the Bible is clear. It's not just natural, 
it's also supernatural. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Matthew 13, the owner sows good seed in his field. And while everyone is sleeping, the enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat. And in the explanation, in the second half of verse 38, Jesus tells us the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. There is a personal, supernatural force of evil. And Jesus repeatedly reminds us of that. I guess the devil's essentially a joke in our culture used to advertise dodgy nightclubs and extra hot mints. People assume he's not real. And if there's no supernatural force of good, then I guess it is implausible to believe in a supernatural force of evil. But even in our very secular times, most people kind of believe there is some sort of supernatural force of good. And if that's true, then it's not at all implausible to believe in a personal supernatural force of evil. In fact, there's far more evidence, you could argue, for that, for the devil, than there is for God. Jim Packer said, if the devil does not exist, then we have to ask who is running his business. There is an evil intelligence at work seeking to damage and destroy. Look around the world today for the evidence. And it's interesting that writers and artists often notice this. Cormac McCarthy, maybe the best contemporary American novelist, died earlier this year, and one of his books is No Country for Old Men, the story of a drug deal that goes wrong and the carnage that follows. And the film of it won uh, the Best Picture Oscar in 2007. And the moral center of the book is the aging sheriff, played by Tommy Lee Jones in the film. And he's trying to work out what's happening, but mainly he just turns up after it's all gone wrong and counts the bodies. And in the book, he says this near the end. I think if you were Satan, and you were sitting around thinking about something that would bring the whole human race to its knees, what you would come up with is narcotics. I told that to someone at breakfast the other day, and he asked me if I believed in Satan. I had to think about that. I guess as a boy I did. Come to the middle years, my belief waned somewhat, but now I'm leaning back the other way. He explains a lot of things that otherwise don't have no explanation, or not to me they don't. Look at our messed up suffering world. Evil is real. It's natural and supernatural. It's in here and it's out there. It is in individuals and it's in systems and cultures. Sometimes evil can corrupt a culture so badly that it becomes very oppressive on the poor and vulnerable and it becomes unjust and racist and sexist and it's very hard to change. And of course as we look at Israel and Palestine we see that the toxic history of that region and what happened to the Jews beforehand have created hostilities and resentments deep within the cultures. And even if people are trying to do good, it's almost impossible to find a road to peace. So we cannot afford to be naive about evil. It operates on every level, personal, cultural, and supernatural. Would you like some good news?
We kind of need it, don't we? Well, the good news is that God is sovereign over the devil. Verse 24, Jesus told them this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. His field. And over the page in the explanation, Jesus says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field, his field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. So he is in charge of the whole world. It's his field. The enemy has to sneak in and out at night in order to do harm when everyone's asleep. And the owner's servants say, do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? They can do it whenever they want to. It's not an equal battle. God is in charge. And finally, at the end, when the harvest comes, there's no fight or struggle. Verse 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. God is always in control. God, the devil is not an equal and opposite of God. He's a fallen creature under God's sovereign hand. If you like, he's the opposite of Michael the archangel rather than the opposite of God. And as Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. The devil is God's devil. In 1518, Luther was summoned by the church authorities to the Diet of Augsburg, and he had to answer chances of heresy. It looked like a trap. His friends told him, don't go, there are devils in Augsburg. And Luther said, yes, but in Augsburg, Jesus reigns. And he went. So you could say God has an asymmetric relationship with evil. He allows it, but he doesn't desire it. People sometimes talk about God's permissive will. He allows bad things to happen for his better ultimate purpose, but they're not his direct will. That's a huge topic I don't have time to pursue further today. But the key point is that God is sovereign over the devil. We read some of Psalm 37, the Psalm of David. And it's a long meditation about evil and how to respond to it. It's not a psalm of praise addressed to God. It's addressed to us, a a wisdom psalm. And David is saying this is how we respond to evil. I'm just going to read you again the first seven verses. And you'll get the point of the whole psalm very quickly. Just listen to the start of each stanza. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Do not fret, trust, commit your ways, be still. We could read all 40 verses and they would say pretty much the same thing. God is in charge and he will deliver us from evil. And that, of course, is how the psalm ends. Uh, 
verse 40, but the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. In fact, the psalm is what's called an acrostic. In other words, each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I suspect David does that as a way of showing that in all this chaos and anguish of a broken world where evil is active and powerful, underneath it there's an order. It's not random or out of control. God is sovereign, so do not fret. If you want another example of that, the book of Lamentations is also an acrostic. Five chapters of agony about the terrible destruction of Jerusalem. Happens in the time of Daniel, which we're studying at the moment. And it talks about the kind of terrible things that happen in war, the kind of things we've been seeing on our screens every evening. Here are a couple of verses. Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Terrible, senseless suffering. And yet, the whole book is an acrostic, calmly going through the alphabet from beginning to end. So it's saying despite the chaos, there is order. God is in control, and so you can trust him. And therefore, God's people ought to have a strange calm, even in the worst of circumstances. In about 400 AD, the Roman Empire was collapsing, and it was the end of civilization as people knew it. And the great Christian thinker Augustine pointed out that paganism, which had dominated Greek and Roman thinking for hundreds and hundreds of years, was inherently chaotic. All these different gods were constantly squabbling and fighting. And anything could happen. The chaos in the world below matched the chaos in the heavens above. But now, Augustine said, everything has changed. Because Christianity tells us there's just one God, and he's in charge of everything. And so the world may appear chaotic, but below that is an order. And so we don't need to panic or despair. And that was a profound change in the way we think about the world. And I guess we have a similar choice, don't we? You know, if evolution is the real story, then violence is the very fabric of reality. Life is essentially a struggle for power. The strong do what they will, and the weak suffer what they must. But if you're a Christian, you know that's not the real story. God is in control. There are devils in Augsburg and Israel and Gaza, but in each of those places, God reigns. So then the question is, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he step in to all this pain? And this is probably the key previously hidden thing that Jesus reveals in this parable of the wheat and the weeds. Do you want us to go and pull up the weeds now, the servants ask? No, he answered in verse 29, because while you're pulling up the weeds, 
you may uproot the wheat with them. So you can't just come and deal with it now. There was a plant called darnel, which people did sometimes sow in their rival's field to cause trouble, so much so it was an offense under Roman law to do that. And the reason it was such a problem was that the roots of the two crops under the surface became completely entangled. If you pulled up one, you would pull up the other. And so you had to wait until harvest. Only then could the two be separated. So God could intervene now, but if he did, our freedom would be over. When the playwright walks on the stage, the play is over. God will destroy evil, but only when the time is right. In the film Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, the hotelier Sonny, played by Dev Patel, says everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end yet. Well, that is kind of the point of this parable. If it's not all right, it's not the end yet. When the time is right, God will act. Then, says Jesus, in verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? Shining like the sun. We'll know that God has done everything right, and everything sad will become untrue. That's why the righteous are shining. That time will come. That keeps us going when things are tough now. I'm sorry I'm making you jump from one passage to the other, but let's just go back to Psalm 37, verse 10. Verse 10, Psalm 37. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he knows their day is coming. That day is coming. But in the meantime, evil and its forces, natural and supernatural, are still active. So what do we do? Well, sometimes evil has to be fought physically. Jesus says to his disciples at the end of the Last Supper, if you don't have a sword, take your cloak and buy one. And Paul says the authorities do not bear the sword for nothing. So sometimes wars have to be fought. On Remembrance Sunday, we give thanks for those who've given their lives an extraordinary number of names, isn't it? 124. To bring us the freedom we have today, and we're enormously grateful for that sacrifice. But at the same time, we know that the real answer to violence cannot be more violence. Benjamin Netanyahu was quoted as saying, what Hamas will experience will be difficult and terrible. We will defeat them with force, enormous force. But will that defeat them? In reality, it will simply raise up another generation who will carry on the hatred. And Jesus, as well as telling the disciples to buy a sword, also says those who take up the sword will die by the sword. And he says, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other one. And in discussing how you put those two things together, G.K. Chesterton says, Christianity is a superhuman paradox whereby two opposite passions may blaze beside each other. 
You can see I've caught the G.K. Chesterton virus from Simon. Christianity is a superhuman paradox whereby two opposite passions may blaze together. Sometimes force has to be used. Nations do have to take the sword, but the sword is never the answer. It never really solves the problem. The plot of pretty much every Hollywood action movie is what's been called the myth of redemptive violence. In other words, the good guys bash the bad guys and ultimately prevail through greater strength and power. But we know, don't we, that that will never really provide an answer to violence. The answer to violence can never be more violence. Jesus' way is radically different. Psalm 37 was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. And it comes near the end of book one of the Psalms, which is the first 41 Psalms. And all except four of those 41 are written by David. And in most of them, David is on the run. He's a lonely figure. He's under constant attack from the forces of evil. The enemies of God are determined to destroy him. And David is not just the writer of the Psalms. He's the anointed one, the coming king. In Hebrew, the anointed one is Messiah. And in Greek, the language of the New Testament, it is Christ. So the Messiah, the Christ, is attacked remorselessly by the forces of evil and suffers alone. When Jesus came, people believed the Messiah would be a triumphant, all-conquering figure. But Jesus explains from the Psalms, Luke tells us, and the rest of the Old Testament, that the Messiah must suffer. The forces of evil will attack him, try to destroy him. For a while they'll appear to succeed, but in the end God will vindicate him. And so ultimately violence cannot defeat violence. God delivers us from evil in a place where evil is absorbed and borne by the suffering God himself. And only that can bring true forgiveness. Only that can make us peacemakers because it brings forgiveness and healing into the depths of our being. Where will the mercy and gentleness and forgiveness that we desperately need to bring peace in the Middle East come from? That miraculous healing balm. Well, it's hard to think where it can come from if it doesn't come from the gospel. People often say that religious fundamentalism is the cause of so much conflict and war. And and there is truth in that, of course. Religious fundamentalists on both sides of the Arab-Israeli conflict make a solution much more difficult. But I suggest to you that the truth about fundamentalism is more nuanced than that. Really, it depends what your fundamental is. If your fundamental is a crucified saviour who did not hide his face from the smiters, then it's very different. You can never think power and violence are the answer. He delivered us from evil not through power, but through weakness, through suffering, through mercy. So our fundamental is a crucified saviour. Evil is real. There's a battle going on. The real war 
is much more serious than what's happening in Ukraine or Gaza. C.S. Lewis said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And Christianity, Lewis said, is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world and everything in it, but something has gone wrong and God insists and insists very loudly on our putting things right again. Every inch is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. That means that in your workplace, in your street, even in the church, Satan is at work seeking to damage and destroy. We cannot be naive. Evil is real. It's inside us and it's outside us. And that means we can't feel that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We're just as flawed and fallible as anyone else. Evil is in individuals and it's in cultures. And that means we have to work to change things on every level. And it's supernatural as well as natural, and that means we have to pray as well as act. There is nothing the devil fears so much, they say, as a Christian on their knees. So this most incomprehensible of mysteries, and yet without it, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. God will, in the end, deliver us from evil. So we don't panic. We have a strange calm, even when the world is in turmoil. And as we battle for good over evil, our fundamental is a crucified saviour. And we know that violence is never the answer to violence. Our weapons are not the weapons of this world. Gentleness, grace, courage to stand for the truth even when it's costly. That is how we battle against evil. And if you're a Christian, then you're in the fight. So let's pray. Lord, we struggle to comprehend the nature of what we are up against. Help us not to be naive. And help us not to be drawn into hitting back and making things worse. Give us great wisdom at work, at home, with our friends, with those we don't know, that we might be ambassadors of hope and peace. And we pray that we might have something of that deep trust in you, the peace which the world cannot give, and that people would see something of that deep calm in us because we know that you are always there, always working for good. Amen.